Happy Friday, folks. It's a beautiful sunny day out here in Vancouver. I'd like to first assert that we are gathered on the unceded and never surrendered stolen territories of the Musqueam, tsleil and Squamish First Nations. My name's Aisha, and I have the honor of representing the Global Shapers Vancouver Hub, where we seek to raise awareness about Indigenous sovereignty, environmentalism, policy, the working class, among many other public interest issues. The reason I'm hosting this discussion today is because I'm one of five children and my parents raised us paycheck to paycheck due to structural poverty. And I work as an organizer for working class folks directly impacted by this issue. Joining me in the studio today is Honorable Shane Simpson, Minister of Social Development and Poverty Reduction, along with Helena Saferling from Living Wage for Families. The Ministry of Social Development and Poverty Reduction focuses on providing British Columbians in need with a system of supports to help them achieve their social and economic potential. This includes, but is not limited to, poverty reduction strategy, supports and services for people living with disabilities, single parent employment initiative, the BC Employment Assistance Policy, and income assistance. The Living Wage for Families campaign encourages employers to pay a living wage as well as advocates for government policies that would help families make ends meet. These basic expenses include food, clothing, rental housing, childcare, transportation, and small savings to cover illness or emergencies. Welcome and thank you for making time out of your extremely busy schedules to be with us today. Good to be here. Thank you, I'm excited. So, uh, we're getting this conversation started around structural poverty, of course, and um, in this discussion, there are so many different discourses and, and views on this, on both sides of the spectrum here. Um, so it's so great to have both of you on to have this, to start this conversation off. Um, Helena, um, you know, just starting off here, what's the role organizations outside of central governments play in tackling poverty and how do they do it? Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of different roles that organizations outside of governments can do. And at the Living Wage for Families campaign, I think we occupy a really interesting space in that um, discussion in that we help to, uh, I think, identify what those roles are. So when we calculate the living wages, we calculate not only the cost of what a family would need for rent and childcare and food and all of the basic necessities in their community, but we also factor in government taxes and transfers. Um, so we can see kind of the full picture of what the family would need to get by in their community, not just given the prices of the things in the community, but also what taxes they pay and what programs they would qualify for and if there's childcare that's subsidized by the government and all those types of things. Um, so I think in terms of the role that we play, we help to identify, um, you know, what the government offers and then if there's any gap remaining between the what people then need to still get by in their community and so we can advocate based on that gap to say hey maybe people need higher wages maybe we can advocate for more affordable housing or affordable childcare or other services to meet that gap so we can help identify what that is and then provide a way to move forward from there right that's great how effective would you say a living wage is at reducing poverty Mm -hmm. I think it's been really effective in two ways. Um, one is in certifying employers. So once we have calculated the living wage in different regions for the province, we certify employers who pay that living wage to their staff and their contractors um, and who also m mandate that any external service providers they work with also pay the living wage. So it really kind of ripples through their local supply chain. 
So that's the, I guess, primary way in that we can identify, you know, to date we've certified 157 living wage employers across the province, which includes some kind of major ones like the City of Vancouver and Van City Credit Union and some larger employers there. And we also know that those employers represent just under 21,700, I believe, workers who are certified or workers who work at the employers that are certified. So we can track those numbers, for example, and say, okay, by, by calculating the living wage and knowing what it is and certifying employers, we can see tangibly that this is the impact. Um, but the other way, and I think this is potentially more important, especially in this conversation, is um, just kind of being part of the public conversation around what what does it mean to have a good life in your community? What do you need to be able to get by? And I think when we talk about poverty more generally, there's a lot of perhaps myths or beliefs people have around, oh, you know, if you can't make ends meet, you just need to spend less or you need to get a better job or it's your own fault somehow. And we can help point out this is not a, you know, a luxurious life that we're calculating. We're not calculating any extras. We're calculating the basics of food and rent and clothing and childcare. And we're not including like, you know, money to pay off debt or save to buy a house or anything like that. So if we can help in that conversation to identify, you know, this is just the bare minimum of what someone would need in order to get by in their community, um, that it helps, I think, to dispel some of those myths around if it's just like bad choices people are making, we can say, actually, no, these are the best choices available and this is still how much it costs. Um, so I think helping insert in that part of the conversation, we can then, you know, yeah, we can then move to talking about solutions that actually get at the root causes of it rather than talking about personal choices. Right. So like yeah. establishing the amount and then acknowledging that, you know, this isn't this is literally just the bare minimum of mm -hmm. survival. Yeah. And then getting past that to actually making a difference. Mm -hmm. What blocks, uh, Minister Simpson, this question is for you. What blocks are there to challenging institutional discrimination towards people in poverty? Well, you know, when we did the work on Together BC, which is the poverty reduction strategy in, in British Columbia, and, and you'll know that uh, we had argued when in opposition for the better part of about 10 years that British Columbia needed a poverty reduction strategy. We were the only province that didn't have a strategy yet. Uh, following a, a pretty extensive consultation where we talked to literally thousands and thousands of people, the majority of them people who had lived experience who were living poor, uh, we then um, legislated, so we've made it the law, uh, a, a poverty reduction strategy with clear targets and timelines, and then put the plan in place. Um, when we put the plan in place, we built it on four foundational pieces, affordability, opportunity, social inclusion, and reconciliation around Indigenous people because the, uh, there's such an inordinate number of the people who are struggling and vulnerable uh, who are First Nations and Indigenous. So. I think that part of that was about understanding that if we want to break the cycle, and the focus is around breaking the cycle, and that's something that's about more than money, and, and money is absolutely critical, but it is about more than money. And and so I, I, I think where we're looking to go with the plan that we put in place and on the best advice that we've got from people uh, who are living in poverty and people who pay a lot of attention to these questions is looking at creating opportunities for people to have choices, to make the choices that they want to make in their own lives for themselves and for their families. Um, and to be able to do that uh, uh, in a fashion where they have, uh, they know that there, there is a, a safety net there um, to be able to provide protections for them and their family as they make these choices. And it's a, it's, poverty is a, a complex issue. Uh, there's just under about 
depending on which measure you use, just around a half a million people in the province right now living in poverty. About 40% of those folks are working poor. About 40% or so of them are supported by my ministry. And then another, the rest of them uh, would be youth, uh, seniors, uh, and some immigrant uh, communities primarily would make up the rest of that. So it's a pretty diverse group and how we get at them around the structural issues is going to be different, I think, in different cases. And so what we're trying to do is build a plan that gives, allows us to be nimble enough to be able to have those conversations and also uh, ensure that uh, we have enough transparency and accountability in the process that if we get things wrong, and we will get things wrong, we will make assumptions about how to correct certain aspects of, of the issue. And uh, some of them are going to be great, and some of them will probably go back and say we could have done that better. So we've tried to create it in a way, uh, establish the plan in a way that allows us to be nimble enough that when we see that we've, we've misjudged or we've, we've used assumptions that maybe are wrong, that we can adapt the plan to be able to respond to that. And I think the comment about what the community does here is really important. Uh, certainly one of the things we found in this process, and it's the commitment we've made, is that if poverty reduction is the responsibility of my ministry alone, it's not going to succeed. It has to be at least an all-of-government approach, and we've developed that in the plan. But even more than that, it has to be a societal approach, which means it involves uh, organizations like the living wage folks, like First Call, like uh, other poverty uh, uh, reduction organizations, and includes business and other levels of government. And, and building that consensus is turning into a big piece of ch changing the structural nature, I think, of how poverty works in a pretty affluent place like British Columbia. Definitely. Um, I know you mentioned in there um, breaking the cycle. Why, why do you think it's taken uh, this, this conversation still in 2019 to still be chatting about this discussion of breaking a cycle? Well, I think we've been having this discussion uh, for decades and decades. You know, I, I go back, I sometimes I tell this story. So I, I grew up in a housing project on welfare in the downtown east side, and that's my experience. And, you know, we had a situation, there was family violence uh, in, in my family. My dad beat my mom up, and my sister and I left, and we lived in Raymer Housing Project down in the downtown east side. And, and that was probably the key to a lot of the success that I, I've had in that is that we had stable housing and my mom didn't have to worry about that piece. She could pay attention to all of the other challenges that poverty fa brings to you and you have to confront because she didn't have to worry about housing at that point. But in my first election campaign in 2005 in, in my constituency, Vancouver Hastings, I was knocking on doors in one of the housing projects in my constituency called the Wall Street Project. Not that big, about 80, 90 unit development. So I ran into three people who were my peers growing up in Raymer. One of them now taking care of their grandkids. Uh, but all three of these folks, um, they couldn't, they didn't break the cycle, their kids didn't break it, and there's a pretty good chance their grandkids might not break the cycle. But it wasn't because they were bad people or they'd done, they weren't bright or they'd done anything particularly untoward. It was just that once you get captured, it's very, very hard to break the cycle. And, and we haven't had consistent programs for a long, long time. I mean, I've been involved for, for decades in, in this work in different ways. 
and we just haven't dealt with that. So this has always been the challenge. And periodically we come and we throw money at things. Not that there's, you know, we need to do that, but we don't solve the problem. We mitigate the problem, and usually it's for a short term. So the challenge of this particular strategy is how do we actually create the opportunity to break the cycle and create the opportunity for people to do that and create the supports for them to be able to achieve that as individuals. We're still figuring out how that works and we're looking at examples around the world, uh, but that's the challenge and it is the, the big challenge. Mm -hmm, for sure. Um, speaking of that, you were, you were mentioning you were knocking on doors for your campaign here. What would you say are the barriers to political participation, uh, like for example, voting to people living in poverty and how would you suggest that they're best overcome? Well, I, I think there's a few things. One is I think the challenges and struggles of poverty um, are hard work. You know, uh, uh, and, and, and often, not always, often poverty is about money. Uh, but many times it's also about people who are struggling with other issues um, as well. You know, there was, uh, there was uh, during the consultation process, and we visited 28 communities around the province and, and participated very actively, myself and Mabel Elmore as the parliamentary secretary. We, I think we were in 27 of the 28 communities, one of the two of us. Um, but I remember somebody saying in the process, you know, Living in poverty is hard work. Uh, figuring out how you make the choices that make the most sense for you and for your family. Living with mental health and addiction issues is hard work to struggle through that in the society we're in. You put the two of them together, and very often you do. People who are struggling with mental health issues struggle with poverty as well. Um, once you do that, you've created a pretty steep hill for people to climb. And those challenges are very tough. And, uh, and we're not a very forgiving society in terms of how we support people. And we're pretty judgmental at times. Uh, we are a society that does distinguish between, and I put big quotation marks around this, the good poor and the bad poor. Uh, and, and we see that in the responses that I, I get when I talk about persons with disabilities. Uh, and folks' response to that versus people who might be street entrenched and struggling with a variety of issues and the response to that. And you'll see that too when you look at how people respond to things like modular housing and the response to homelessness and modular housing. And, and in some communities, thankfully a very small number of communities throughout the province, but folks have responded um, in, in ways that uh, aren't grounded in, in facts but they talk about the risk of, of putting people who are homeless uh, next to anything, but in their community and in their neighborhood. And it creates anx anxiousness and anxiety. Not founded, but it's real, and you have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, speaking to your personal experience, I mean, I also grew up working class family. I'm, I'm a one of five children uh, to my two parents. I'm the only girl. Um, my parents, uh, my dad was a contractor. So I'm sorry, actually he was a subcontractor. So, you know, he always gets the, um, the short end of the stick there. Uh, my mom uh, grew up doing professional wedding mainly, which is like the uh, Indian South Asian um, henna art. Uh, so a lot of the times uh, they were finding extremely crafty ways to make sure that we were getting three meals a day. And it really is, it's such hard work. And a lot of the times when I'm speaking with other folks who have 
similar experiences. They um, m oftentimes come from single family homes um, and uh, it's their mother who's the breadwinner. And so we think about how poverty really does target, it is like a sexist issue, it's a gender issue. So I think about um, that and then, and it also comes to mind like wh why are, and I, I think other folks also have this question, like why are wages still low for traditionally women's work? Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, can I jump in on that mm -hmm. as well? Um, I, I just to pick up on this thread of what we think of as hard work. I think when it comes to working poverty, and you're right that a lot of the the jobs that tend to be low paid tend to be more dominated by women. And there's also research to show that as more men enter a field, the wages go up. So that's a whole other side of this gendered issue. Um, but when it comes to working poverty, which is what mainly we deal with at the Living Wage for Families campaign. Um, that notion comes up a lot around like, well, you know, if this job is low paid or low skill, that's not very hard work. So that's why they're not getting paid very much or that's why we don't need to pay them more. Um, but I think the more that we can change the conversation around kind of identifying that, yes, first of all, if you're struggling to make ends meet, that's hard work. You have to you have to do so much every day to try to plan out how you're going to get from this place to that place and how you're going to make your money go as far as it can and how you're going to get your kids where they need to go and all of that is very difficult and takes a lot of work um, and also pointing out that the jobs people do even if they don't seem like they're maybe the most impressive job there's so many jobs that people do that are really integral to the community making sure that we have clean streets and that our children are cared for and that our seniors are cared for and all of this work that we just don't value monetarily but we should because it contributes so much to our community. Um, and again, I think that's where the living wage can come in handy because we can point out that, because we believe you know, that everyone should, that works should get a living wage. So we can point out that you know, if, we're, if we're valuing work based on understanding that we all are contributing to our community um, and we look out for each other and we treat each other as if we are all impacting each other, then it becomes easier to understand why we should pay people more um, or pay people just enough to get by in their community, basically. Mm -hmm. I used to work with cleaners um, mm. in organizing them in, in non-union work sites and, and oftentimes there's, uh, there's a whole other conversation around enablement and power and how they, they were really made to feel like their job was the bottom of the bucket mm. and there, we had to have all these conversations around you know the role and the impact that they make in spaces that they clean um, like you know today we're sitting in the beautiful Vancouver Public Library amazing space um, had we not had a cleaner here today even in the last 36 hours this wouldn't have even been able this space wouldn't have even been able to provide mm -hmm. um, adequacy for folks who even visit here and so uh, when we start to have these conversations with these cleaners uh, I mean in my case um, they started like I could see in their head like things like coming together and realizing like oh this is it isn't like you know this isn't bad work it's not a bad job this is there's no such thing as a bad job you mm -hmm. know um, but it really takes those conversations and oftentimes like taking the time to like empower others and to and to, and to let them step into that power mm -hmm. uh, can I add one more thing yeah. that I just thought of when you said that as well is that the other important piece is that there are so many jobs like in food service and cleaning and janitorial services that aren't gonna go away like we, these are just jobs that are always gonna be there maybe until there's robots doing everything, but until then, people are gonna need to do them. And so something else that, I, that we hear all the time, right, is that, oh, well, if someone just can't get by on that job, they just need to go get a better paid job. But mm -hmm. someone still needs to do that work. And so we still need to value those jobs. Right. 
So what forms would you say, Helena, are uh, what forms of institutional structures, processes, and reforms enable people living in poverty to hold um, state and non-state actors into account? I think there's a lot of different strategies available. Um, I mean, one of the things that is exciting now that we have a provincial government that's very interested in taking action on poverty reduction um, has been that there has been more public consultation going on. Um, so that means not just with folks like me representing an organization that we can, you know, submit a formal recommendation and meet with committees perhaps and, and go about it that route, but also just having open consultations to the public so that folks can share their experience and, and talk about what they're dealing with. Um, for example, uh, just a few months ago here with the Fair Wages Commission, they had a public consultation on um, that gap between the minimum wage right now and what would be some sort of living wage that would enable people to be paid enough to get by in their community. So of course we're very interested in that and we were working, providing a lot of recommendations to them. Um, but something that we that we felt strongly about was also having folks that could share their lived experience come and speak. Um, and so with our allies at the Poverty Reduction Coalition and the Single Mothers Alliance, we organized for a few folks to come and share their stories um, that went beyond just what they deal with with work. They were talking about, you know, well, if I'm on welfare and I'm looking to get work, but the work that's available is not paid that much more than my I'm currently getting on assistance, what's like, how do I navigate that? Or I'm you know, I had a, a long-term disability and now I'm trying to figure out. So they're kind of just assessing all of the options available to them and finding that they're struggling no matter what they do, basically. Um, and I think hearing those nuances from people's personal stories is really important. Um, and I think it's, it, the way I see it as well is it's not even so much that that we have to kind of prove anything to government to, to, to show why people's experiences are the way they are. I think it's just like a lot of things in that you only know what your own experience is and you only know what you've been uh, exposed to. But there could be folks who are just like, I didn't even know that because this policy works this way, it means that there's this gap happening over there. So th this person pointed that out and now that's really useful and we can take that back and figure out how to respond to that. Um, so I think, yeah, engaging with public consultations and kind of advocacy to the government is really important. Um, yeah, and I think that's the major one that I think right now is an exciting opportunity <laughs> now that we have this government. I think that, um, and, and this was a, a, a big part of our, our internal conversation and one of the reasons that we legislated. Uh, when you look across the country at poverty reduction strategies, there's a handful, not that many, that have legislation. Many are by program and by regulation. So we legislated, and, and I know one of the pieces that I put in place when we were going through the early process was the, um, the Poverty Reduction Advisory Forum. It was about 27 people from across the province, uh, significant Indigenous representation, lived experience representation, working poor, business, labor, uh, local government. It was, it was a pretty, pretty diverse group. And they provided advice on the legislation as we were getting to it. And I, I would tell you that I initially, we put targets and timelines in the legislation. It's actually a 25% reduction in overall poverty and a 50% reduction in child poverty over the next five years. And then a commitment also to a second phase of the plan to continue that work. But I'd originally planned to, to do that and put that in regulation uh, rather than to uh, put it right into the legislation. But, but the, the forum was very strong and very compelling argument about why 
it needed to be in legislation, the clear targets and timelines. And, and so that's what we did. And, and we made it the law and we created the transparency and accountability tools a, as well. And I think that's what's important because then regardless of who the government is, it's the law. And there is a process yeah. that needs to be followed. So that doesn't mean a future government necessarily needs to do that. But if they don't do it, they also then will be held accountable. The, 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 the law requires an annual report to the legislature to be tabled in the legislature. It set up an independent committee uh, that will provide commentary on the progress report every year when it's prepared. And, and that's a, a pretty diverse group of, of interests. So I think those are big pieces in terms of, of the accountability for government moving forward. Uh, and and we'll, we'll see how that works over the next couple of years. Uh, um, as, uh, as the plan moves forward. Uh, but uh, I think that those become important pieces to deal with that. And also to always uh, continue to make the connections to other things in government. You know, arguably the most effective things that we're doing around poverty reduction actually fall under the child care initiatives, uh, which I know the living wage uh, mm -hmm. reduced the amount of the living wage reflective of what they believe the impact of the child care initiatives have been. Mm -hmm. So saying it will cost less to live uh, for a number of people because there's a child care option here that's going to reduce their child care costs and improve their child care access. Uh, and, and that's why across the board uh, many people have said child care, certainly for single moms, is maybe the biggest initiative that we do around poverty reduction. Uh, certainly it opens the door for people to go and think about um, upgrading their education or getting work if they have confidence that they can find an affordable way for quality care for their kids. Uh, housing is the other big one. Uh, so those are the two big pieces. And when we did the consultation, as I said, we went into 28 communities. Housing was the priority in 27 out of 28 communities, needing it to find a place to live. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely like it, it all starts with these kinds of conversations, which I'm so thankful that we're having today. Uh, when I spoke with some folks that I was doing this podcast on structural poverty, they just kind of looked at me blank in the face with like, oh, that's like so uncomfortable. I'm like, what? And, uh, and it just kind of leads to this other conversation around shame, around mm -hmm. talking about poverty or like your own experiences or critiquing poverty. And, and like there's just so much shame around it. Like it's it's really unreal. And I mean, I, you know, I. I came from a working class family, so of course um, I always had that nuance and that reality, so it was nothing I could really escape, but um, went to an inner city high school and being around folks within your own community um, also allows you to like step into that and own it really. Um, but yeah, for the folks who, who are disenfranchised from that or, or who are living in more remote areas, there, there's a lot of shame that, um, that does come out from it. And so I also wonder like, how can people be helped to progress out of low paid employment into better paid jobs? That's part of our priority. One of the things that we did in British Columbia is we have labor market, so a, a significant investment in labor market through the Work BC model, which is employment centers and what that looks like. Um, the program has been around, uh, the previous government had just completed in this past April, the first six years of the initiative. and. And what we found when we looked at it, and I can think back to 2011 when it was put in place, and, and I was the critic at the time for the opposition on, on the issue, and, and we did a lot of work on it. And what we found is that it was designed in a way that it tended to support 
folks who were more job ready uh, to be able to come in and get resume support and learn about a job search and access a database. And then the, the, the contracted agency, because we contract this mostly to nonprofits, to some for-profits, but mostly nonprofits who deliver this an, around the province, um, they would get paid. But they didn't get paid to support people who needed more time, who needed case management, people who had other uh, challenges, persons with disabilities, folks with other complex issues. So we restructured the program pretty dramatically, and it's a very different program now that, that pays now pays for you to case manage folks, i.e. to get people into jobs, but to look at, at outcomes rather than outputs. It's not like how many people flowed through a job. For example, in the first period, about almost two-thirds of the people who would go into a WorkBC Centre would get a job. But in less than six months, 30% of those people wouldn't have the job. They'd be gone. We've now created a system where you can work with people who are underemployed or needing a job, get them employed, and then work with them for up to a year with them and the employer. And our thinking is, if we can keep somebody in a job for a year and they build a relationship with their employer, the potential that that job will be sustained becomes a lot greater than if you kind of get them the job and then say, good luck, and here's a cup of coffee, and you're on your own. So I think that that becomes important. Also, some of the educational opportunities, and this is another piece of the work we've done, doing things like uh, making adult basic education free again, uh, making English language learning free again. The previous government was charging $1,600 for those programs. Uh, we know it just seems you know, penny-wise and pound-foolish to say we're not going to give you fundamental skills um, so that you can go out and do for yourself. So those kind of pieces are there. Um, supporting kids aging out to be able to go and get free post-secondary now, paid for by the government. Um, and it's the argument, and uh, the Premier and, and the Finance Minister made this argument that, you know, if you have kids, when your kids turn 18 or so, you don't say, well, it's been great to know you, you're on your own. You continue to the best you can to support your kids to be successful. We can't flip the switch on kids who essentially we are their parent as government mm -hmm. uh, and when they get to that age and and what you really want is as they age out you want them to have opportunities that don't start with coming to my ministry to get an income assistance check they start with something else and if they're ready for education it's great and we just put this in place a little over a year ago we have 800 kids now or young people they're not kids anymore but young people who came through as, as in care kids uh, who now have moved into post-secondary uh, education of some form paid for under this program. And those 800 young people will have a much better chance of being successful in their lives and creating the lives that they want because they're going to get this educational opportunity that simply wouldn't have been there if they had to pay a couple thousand bucks a year for it. Right. Yeah, and uh, to add to that as well, um, so from, it's an interesting question, I think, for the Living Wage for Families campaign, um, because as I, as I said, we believe that everyone who works should get a living wage. So that should be the baseline that you at least are being paid enough to get by in your community if you're doing paid work in your community. Um, if you're not, then, and if you're on other assistance forms, again, yes, we've, I'm, the ministry I know is taking more action on increasing those rates and providing other supports for folks as well. Um, but if you're doing paid work, we believe you should get a living wage. And so 
we kind of start the conversation as saying it, it, it shouldn't be, I suppose, as urgent that you really need to get a better paid job in order to get by in your community. Um, but with that said, of course, we think there should be opportunities for folks to upgrade their education, get the skills they need, um, move up in their career, get better paid jobs, and be able to live more comfortably. That would be nice. The living wage calculation, again, is very bare bones, so it would be good to ensure that folks have options and opportunities to move beyond that. Um, and so to that end, I think the, the, the uh, programs and supports that the minister has mentioned are really important. Um, making post-secondary education more accessible and affordable, training programs, all of that. And in the living wage um, budget, we also include uh, an amount every year for one of the parents in the family, at least, to take two university courses or the equivalent. So we put in an amount of money to say, um, there's something in there for you to upgrade your education uh, or take a, some sort of training program or professional development in your field so that you can hopefully move beyond that. And I think uh, the other piece too, as the minister has touched on earlier, is that um, the more that costs can be decreased, uh, which, again, yes, often helps through government programs, as we saw this year when the living wages actually went down because of this, this uh, government's work in childcare. Um, then if that does open up some money in people's budgets that they don't have to spend on childcare, they don't have to spend on housing, they don't have to be tracking every single penny, then it does open up more opportunities for them to say, well, what do I want to invest in for my future and my kids' future? What is the other opportunity that I can now seek out because I'm not... Uh, my, my budget isn't so tightly constrained anymore, which is really powerful as well. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I know we chatted a little bit about consultations and uh, consulting with folks living living in poverty, experiencing poverty. Um, like Maybe a little bit more in detail, I, I really would love to flesh that out. What ways can people experiencing poverty develop, deliver, and evaluate policy and practice? I think, I guess along with that, I think the the more that um, nonprofits and community groups, and even if it's not a formal group, but the more that folks with lived experience can sort of elevate their voices to get to government, um, that is really important. And I guess by that I mean that that I've said that I think it's really important that there's lots of public consultations happening, um, and that governments in general provide a lot of opportunities for folks to give feedback and let them know what they want to do in their future and kind of just be part of a really engaged democracy. But especially for folks living in poverty or experiencing barriers, that can be really challenging to participate in all of those things, right? Um, even if maybe you don't have internet or you don't know something's happening or you feel like you're not the type of person who they want to hear from or you don't, you're not able to access that opportunity, even if you want to go, maybe there's no public transit in your community and you don't have a car and you can't get there. There's so many reasons why people wouldn't be able to participate. Um, and so I think the more that groups that are working in the community can make sure that those voices of people living with poverty and living with these experiences, um, that their voices shape and direct their work um, and that their voices are the ones that are amplified to the government, um, then that that is a really important way to help overcome that barrier for folks. You know, with this, and, and I, this is one of the pieces that uh, I'm, I think has been most important in the evolution of the plan in British Columbia. When we went through the consultation and, and we talked very much about, about these issues of how people actually access. So, so we did an array of things. We did all of the things with social media and we did internet and, and we, we gave money out to organizations to do a hundred small consultations 
driven by organizations. We gave money to First Nations to do consultations on reserve. We supported the friendship centers uh, to all do consultations. But the cornerstone, the big piece, was the 28 meetings around the province. And as I said, I attended 21 of those, and uh, Mabel Elmore attended six, and we missed one in Prince George because the flight canceled. But other than that, and, and attending was more than often I do, as politicians do. I come and kind of say hi at the beginning and leave. I, I We stayed for the whole session and, and were active participants. So we talked to 8,500 people across the province through these processes. And as I said, about two-thirds of them people with, who were living poor. Mm-hmm. But when we did this, we, co- we, we contracted with the Social Planning and Research Council of British Columbia, who are really excellent around facilitation, and had a long discussion about what we needed to do to make this work, and to get people in the room who were living poor and people who were street entrenched and how did we get them there so at every one of these sessions around the community we had meals there was a meal that happened before the session for people who self-identified as being poor we gave them twenty dollars just to cover offset costs we obviously provided childcare, all of those things but we knew around the room there were lots of people from agencies and organizations who were paid to be there uh, so we gave people who weren't 20 bucks um, just to help set those costs aside. We made the decision not to do <clears throat> the big community meeting with the microphone where people got up and kind of talked to the front of the room, but instead did it with small tables. So we'd have 100 people in the room, and we'd have 10 or 12 small tables with seven or eight people around the table with facilitators and note takers to allow those conversations to happen at that level and to engage and then very, very detailed note-taking. And and anybody who wanted to know how that played out, there is a What We Heard report that's available on the website that that goes into depth about what we heard. But that gave people the opportunity. And there were a lot of really courageous people uh, who told their stories. And it was probably a lot easier for them to tell that story with seven or eight people around the table as a conversation evolved. You know, we asked only a couple of questions. We didn't ask a lot of questions. Uh, but that evolved rather than asking people to stand up in front of a room of 100 people and talk about how they made choices about eating or, you know, the woman who said, well, yeah, I go to Value Village and I steal stuff because that's how I get clothes. Um, or other stories that were challenging or people who talked about their addictions and the challenges and why they did drugs um, and how they felt invisible and but when they were high, they didn't care. Uh, and... And so that worked really well, and, and I, I, I think that we learned a lot from that. And as I said, we had four foundational things we built the plan on, but the thing that came out of that more than anything, and it's the cornerstone, I think, of success around opportunity in that, is the social inclusion, the alienation that comes with poverty, the devaluing of people who are poor. You know, when we talk about people taking opportunities that are in front of them, it's about being resilient. We all get knocked down every all the time in our work and our lives, and and the success is in being resilient enough to get back up and keep going. But if you spend, if somebody has their whole life with people telling them they're not worth much, and then you say, well, now be resilient and be self-confident enough to have your self-resilience, and how come you can't do that? Well, it's because people have been telling you forever or for as long as you know, that you really aren't worth as much as that person across the street because they have a job and they have a car and they have a house. So if we want to create opportunities really to break the cycle, 
that becomes the cornerstone of that. We're not going to be successful in breaking that cycle as long as people can't find their place uh, because we're not we're not opening a door. Definitely. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm taking you back to my undergrad days of all those sociologists telling us about self-fulfilling prophecy and how the tongue really is such a powerful thing and what you hear from others and, and how that translates to your value. Um, question for you, Helena. Which poverty campaigns have been the most successful at reducing poverty and what do you what do you feel can be learned from them? That is a big question. Yeah, I think um, I mean a few things are like in general. What's coming to mind first, I guess, is just the the huge amount of work that's been done uh, here in BC for years and years to try to get a poverty reduction plan in place. Um, and I know there's been so many folks involved in that with the Poverty Reduction Coalition and many other groups across the province. I. I haven't been involved in all of those years of all of it, so I, I can't speak to all of it, but I can see that um, a lot of people put in a lot of hard work around, um, especially around amplifying the voices of those living in poverty, I think to, ex to as the minister's saying, to kind of explain what, the, what it looks like day to day for people and not just, oh, I don't have enough money or, oh, uh, yeah, I'm, you, based on how you look at me, you think certain things about me, but this is actually how I have to get by day to day, and this is the in and out of it. And I think that can help people understand. Um, the other piece of, uh, or the other, I guess, like campaign tactic that I think has been really useful um, is the piece around costing out what poverty actually costs us. Um, and I know this report is a little bit outdated now, but the folks at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, the BC office here, put out a report back in 2011 where they calculated the cost of poverty. And they calculated their, I believe it was close to $9 billion a year that they thought that poverty cost the province when it comes to increased healthcare costs, um, cost for the justice system, and reduced economic activity. And I think for some people, that kind of campaign is really powerful because it shows, um, you know, Added, added costs, first of all, that we're paying as a province and also lost revenue that we could also have. I think there's a limitation to that sort of campaign just in the sense that it shouldn't be about the money, you know, like it should be about we care about people that we live with that are our neighbors and we want to make sure that they um, have enough to get by. So I think that that can only be part of the overall campaign. Um, but I think it's, it's especially powerful at pushing back against um, if, if people have a notion that, um, you know, that, that people who are living in poverty or are not getting by it, that they're, um, that, it, that it, I guess it's more about their own personal choices and their own personal budget, we can push back and say, well, actually, this is how we're all in this together. And we all either benefit or lose out if not all of us are um, able to succeed. Um, which also, I guess, ties into lots of research that's been done around how health outcomes are better for folks in more equitable societies, both rich and poor. It's not just that poor people um, can do better, it's that we all do better in a society that's more equitable. So I think when I think of successful campaigns, I think of um, kind of the combination of having sound data and numbers to help back up. This is what the costs are. This is what the, the, the kind of the tangible objective side of it is, but then matching that with kind of a human-centered approach thinking about, well, these are our neighbors, these are our friends, um, and we care about each other, and we all do better when we all do better. So that's kind of why, kind of that moral side of it. Um, and maybe just one example I'll share on that as well is that I know 
um, even with one of our living wage employers who certified a number of years ago, when they were first looking into certifying as a living wage employer, they were kind of assessing, you know, which of their staff and contractors had to have their wages increased. And um, one of the staff that had to have their wages increased was a security guard. And I think I had heard stories about how there were some staff at the organization that didn't really understand and they were like, well, I don't know if we need to do this living wage employer thing. I don't really get it. Um, they just weren't totally on board. But once the employer could speak with them and say, hey, well, you know, the security guard here that you talk to every day and you see him on your way in and out and you know about him and his family and his mom and all the, the stories, right? He's the one that's actually going to benefit. And then people are like, oh, well, I know that guy and I see him every day and he's great. I want him to be able to go spend time with his mom. Like, okay, yeah. And so they, they connect to that human side of it. So I think bringing in that piece is, is really important as well. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the issues too, and, and I think is that Poverty is multi-layered and it's complex, and there are a whole array of issues to get at. Uh, as we talked before, we have the folks who um, receive support from government, whether it's income or disability assistance. <clears throat> Often the debate there is around the policies, and, and we've made significant changes in policies to, to make them less punitive than, than they've been in the past, and, 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 and increases, and there always will be challenges around rates. So we've increased rates from $1,800 to $2,400 a year uh, over the last two years. Uh, but people will say that that's not enough, and, and it's a fair comment uh, in terms of the cost, certainly, of living in Vancouver and living in British Columbia. Uh, and then you have a group of folks who, uh, and, and within that, folks who are on disability benefits, persons with disabilities versus temporary assistance. So it's called very different situations. Earning exemptions are different. People's issues are different. People are perceived differently. You have the working poor. Uh, you have seniors. You have young people who are coming up. So you have all these levels. And when you talk about poverty reduction, there are two ways to measure poverty. You measure the breadth or the depth of poverty. Uh, to reach our targets, it's a breadth issue. It's about getting people over the line. Uh, that's not, but that, that doesn't address the issues of deep poverty and, and how to address that. Yet, there are complexities around that. I'll give you an example. So, we, uh, we increased almost, it was the first thing we did as government, was in, provide a $100 a month increase to everybody on assistance uh, back in 2017. So a year later, when I look at the SROs, which is most of the, the downtown, the hotel housing in the downtown east side in those communities, about a year in, I said, because we, about 90% of the people in those units are supported by my ministry, I said, let's go check the rents. I want to know what people are paying. So we did that, and we could track how rents increased by 80 to to $100 shortly after. Because of the nature of that housing, they don't have the same controls under as residential tenancy controls but we could see those increases so then the question became was it for that group of people uh, who were living in those communities they essentially took the hundred dollars that we gave them and then handed it to a landlord mm -hmm. and was that really that's not was not what we wanted to accomplish it wasn't a surprise so now of course the conversation is how do we have that not occur and how do we make sure more of those dollars stay in the pockets of people who who need the money to pay for food or, or other necessities. So there's a whole bunch of, of challenges for how you get at these things and the complexity of poverty. And, 
And I sometimes think, and I get it, uh, I think that there are folks out there about advocates and people who would tell us that folks should kind of be more self-reliant. But I think we try to simplify this uh, sometimes. Uh, and the more I learn about it, the more challenging it becomes uh, moving forward. So that's a conversation that we're increasingly able to have. And, and I think part of the reason we're able to have it is because we have some goodwill out there as government that we're, we're making a sincere effort here. So that when we sit down with people uh, in the community who spend a lot of time working on these issues, we're trying to have that conversation about what are the priorities and the choices. We're not going to get to achieve everything we want. Where do we start? What are the first steps? What do we need to do moving forward? All of that will be part of the challenge uh, that we face. And, and that's an ongoing conversation. Uh, that's why, you know, the Poverty Reduction Coalition said it'd take 10 years to fix this. Uh, I think it'll take at least 10 years. Uh, but, you know, what we want to do is make sure we make sig we're making significant progress. But all the way along, it needs to be a conversation because the field changes all the time. And the costs in a place like British Columbia and a place like Vancouver, it's a very expensive place to live. Uh, we looked at programs here and we we're looking at programs in Winnipeg and looking at modeling programs in Winnipeg, particularly around some housing issues. But we don't have Winnipeg's circumstance. What it costs to rent a place in Winnipeg and what it costs to rent a place in Vancouver are not the same thing. And being able to do just replicate that program, just it doesn't make sense because the differences are so are so dramatic. So that's part of the challenges. Yeah, I totally hear that. I think we hit the nail on the head here about humanizing government and like really putting like a human face to it. You know, uh, Minister Simpson, you mentioned uh, modeling some some uh, poverty re reduction strategies from Winnipeg and, you know, the complexities behind that. And it, uh, it it's it's interesting because when we think about um, structural poverty, like we're looking at a, we're looking at having this conversation and and um, making an impact locally and globally, and like hopefully conversations like these, um, other folks can listen to it and think, hey, we can we can take a little of what they're saying and and um, and implement it wherever we are in the world. Um, considering Canada is so large, um, and you know we have so much, and we're we're all very fragmented in our in our little communities everywhere we are. Um, how can access to opportunities be improved in isolated or disconnected areas that can reduce persistent poverty? Well, it's one of the reasons when we first started doing this work that uh, we put the consultation process in place that we did. It would have been very easy to make the plan about Vancouver and Victoria uh, and not about outlying communities. And when we got into Fort St. James and into outlying communities, uh, uh, we learned a lot. And we learned about the difference uh, of poverty in different places and what it meant and how poverty impacts communities in different ways. <clears throat> and it's part of the reason, much like with homelessness and, and the homelessness strategy that rests with my ministry as well, that um, it is about um, having initiatives that can be designed to work in a community uh, and work differently in communities. And that's why it's also not about just the provincial government. It has to be about local governments. And there are lots of local governments that have taken up the issues of poverty in their communities. Um, they don't have resources, but they've been advocates and they've talked about it in the context of their community. So, so we're looking at how we support that work going forward. 
and be able to build those partnerships as well as, as build the partnerships with, uh, uh, with community organizations that are doing that work as well. So there's a lot of work around that and we have some tools to provide uh, resources uh, into communities for that. But as an example on the homelessness uh, file, so we look at the homelessness issue. Uh, we did the first provincial count last year that's ever been done. So we have 22, 2300 people in Vancouver who are identified at this point. They are essentially for society, they are anonymous. We can't, but we don't, we just know they're all out there and we see people every day who clearly look like they're on the street and we can see Oppenheimer Park and, and what's happening there with the tenth city. So there's one response there. Yet we go to Cranbrook where we identified 26 people living homeless. In Cranbrook, we can talk to local government and the service providers and probably identify and name every one of those people, understand issues they may have, whether they're health issues or other issues, and think about how we respond to help those folks. So again, when you get into outlying communities, you have to create the opportunity for those communities to help design the model within a, a provincial context for themselves. Uh, to make it work and very much indigenous communities, First Nations communities and we invested heavily in supporting First Nations and Métis. They were the two key groups through the process we went through but we're now working with the Friendship Centers, tw uh, the 26 Friendship Centers across the province, working with the First Nations Leadership Council uh, because there's so inordinately high numbers of people struggling with poverty First Nations uh, compared to the population. And that's where we're starting to find uh, some room for innovative uh, approaches in communities that we might not have think about in Vancouver because of who and where we are, but in Quesnel it makes a heck of a lot of sense. So, and in some places Quesnel's the big city for the people around Quesnel, so <laughs> that too. But that's gotta be part of the work and that's part of the challenge of the complexity as well, is how do you get at those communities um, and deal with the innate biases that exist in those communities as well. Mm -hmm. I, uh, yeah, I think that speaks again to kind of a theme we've been talking about today in general around making sure that the voices of those most impacted by these issues are the ones who's, who are listened to. Um, especially, I think, yeah, it becomes more important in smaller communities where um, it's just we, we especially we here in Vancouver we can't pretend to know what it's like there or we can't understand what the specifics of their day-to-day -day life are um, and for example with the living wage for families campaign when we calculate the living wages in each community we don't do so from here in Vancouver we partner with local partners in each community to help calculate and they're the ones that find the local data and input the data and you know we have our methodology they follow but they're the ones that collect that information for their community um, because they know they know their community best and they know what's going on and for example, if we um, figure out a living wage and we put in some numbers and they're like, you know what, this doesn't quite, this doesn't make sense. Like I know that, you know, CMHC says housing costs this much in my community, but that's really not what people are dealing with. Or, you know, in our community, people actually are gonna, are likely to live in a two bedroom apartment r rather than a three bedroom because that's just not available in our community. Or, you know, even we, we run into issues, especially around Vancouver Island and, and smaller island communities where people are like, well, how do we factor in our transportation because we have to take a ferry in order right. to go get groceries off island because there's no grocery stores here. So there's all these interesting things that come up 
But again, I guess similar to what the minister was saying, that you wouldn't necessarily know that ahead of time unless you go speak to the people in the community and they can explain, well, this is how we, we make things work for us. This is what our access to various services is like. This is what the situation is. This is what it costs here. And I think especially in BC, there's a lot of really interesting like particularities as well around so many places here that are so beautiful and so there's lots of tourists that want to come and visit and then things like housing and food tend to be quite expensive as well uh, and maybe things like family housing and childcare are less available because there's more um, more spots available for tourists that come in and out so there's so many interesting dynamics that are different in each community and so I think it just speaks again to the importance of recognizing that people know their own lives best and they know what solutions would probably work for them. Uh, and so making sure that we're understanding what those are and listening to them. And I think that goes both for governments that are trying to make policies as well as for community organizations and, and advocacy groups that are trying to help be part of that conversation. We also need to make sure that we're understanding <coughs> and speaking with folks experiencing things and making sure that we're um, you know, able to adequately try to support them, help them amplify their voices and do that appropriately. Right. Thank you. Um, and all of this, all of the work that you both do, it's very, like, I can imagine it's work that you pro most most of the time take home. Um, I don't think it's like some of the things that you just leave at the office. Um, Minister Simpson, is have you had a, an opportunity in the last two years to actually sit and think about how full circle life has come that you've... Um, you know, went from living living in a social project um, to where you are today. Oh, sure, it's it's not lost on me, and I I see still I I I still I live in uh, the community largely where I grew up, uh, and uh, and so uh, I often I see people who are my peers uh, growing up, um, and uh, and or I hear from them through social media and that, and so. Uh, absolutely, uh, I think about that, and and it was a good grounding, but it was a long time ago, and uh, and and while some of the fundamentals haven't changed, uh, a lot of other things have changed. In many ways, it was an easier time in some ways back when I was growing up as a kid, um, and and my mom, uh, you know, was on first of all on on welfare, and and then got a minimum wage job, uh, sorting clothes donations for the Salvation Army, and that's this was essentially her income was minimum wage so as a sorting clothes for the Salvation Army and their donation shop. Uh, and, and so uh, you do think about that, uh, and you do think about people that you see who uh, are struggling. Uh, but I think, that, I think that as we move forward, um, you have to look at where the opportunities are and what progress is. It is about incremental change, uh, and I, you know, I, I often, I know, I, I sometimes uh, people say that I, I try to uh, diminish expectations sometimes because part of the challenge of moving forward with this is you create a lot of expectation, and and that's okay, uh, but we're not going to meet them all, um, and I often talk about that, you know, I'm going to have people who will criticize me for not going far enough, not going fast enough, and. I accept that. That that's fine. Uh, my response to that always is, G give us credit for what we did do, and I'm happy for you to tell me what we should be doing on top of that. Always moving towards positive, impactful change. Thank you, both of you, Helena and Minister Simpsons, for all the great work that you're both doing. Um, I know British Columbians are most grateful. Um, and thank you for joining us on this podcast. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity.
Thank you. It was a great conversation.